Hey, Evelyn. Can I ask you a question? You got a moment? Yeah. Which team do you play for? Well, I I'm a peach. Well, I was just wondering, because I couldn't figure out why you would throw home when we've got a two-run lead. You let the tying run get on second, and we lost the lead because of you. Now you start using your head. That's not love that's three feet above your ass. <laughs> Are you crying? No. Are you crying? Are you crying? There's no crying. There's no crying in baseball. Why don't you leave her alone, Jimmy? Oh, you zip it, Doris. Rogers Hornsby was my manager, and he called me a talking pile of pig shit. And that was when my parents drove all the way down from Michigan to see me play the game. And did I cry? No, no. No! No! And you know why? No. Because there's no crying in baseball. There's no crying in baseball! No crying! What's the matter, Jimmy? What? She's crying, sir. I didn't mean to do that. Perhaps you chastised her too vehemently. Good rule of thumb. Treat each of these girls as you would treat your mother. You want to ever tell you you look like a penis with a little hat on? Oh, my goodness. You're out of here! Oh, no, right no, no, now, no, Jimmy, you, I heard you that! Misunderstood <laughs> me. You misunderstood <laughs> me! No, you can't throw me out! You know, it's funny when you watch A League of Their Own on cable TV and you don't watch it, like, on HBO or you have the DVDs, you don't realize that there's a lot more cursing and a lot more... Uh, language that goes into that uh, league of their own and why am i talking about a league of their own yes it's another baseball podcast actually it's a twofer today i've been uh, putting these together and uh, today we did a twofer only because the two interviews that i did were uh, a little shorter because of time purposes and both were on kind of pr stops so i had to work around that schedule so they were shorter so what i did is i did a full baseball podcast a twofer with their books so make sure you check them out the first one is a book called The Incredible Women of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League by Anika Orock. And Anika wrote and illustrated a book about that league that was featured in A League of Their Own. And we'll see how close they resembled the movie. How close was it to the actual truth? And, of course, did they Hollywood it? They Disneyfy it? So uh, we'll hear from that. Later on in the show, I get to talk to former Major League Baseball players on the MLB Network, Bill Ripken, and talk to him about his book as well, uh, about analytics, and not necessarily his hatred for analytics. He doesn't hate analytics, but eh, they kind of go a little too far, if you ask me and if you ask him as well when it comes to how baseball and these strange advanced stats. Now, I preface this, uh, I've said this on a couple other podcasts that I've done, because of Zoom and the capabilities nowadays, uh, during and after the pandemic and everything, how everything hit, that uh, Zoom is the way to go now. And so I recorded these a little bit, a little while ago, not too long ago, but the capabilities, I was able to get them through Zoom, Zoom the better uh, quality guests as opposed to, the, when I say better quality, better sound quality as opposed to just over the phone. So I made do with what I could. But they sounded as good as they can, and I hope you enjoy it. And let me know what you think in the comments section, and please give me a good review because I'd like to keep doing these. <laughs> not like to think I'm always wasting my time just doing these podcasts. So without further ado, the first one is up. We're talking about the incredible women of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, and the book is by Anika Orock. Oh, relax. I'm talking looky, no touchy. 
Just that we want girls who are easy on the eye. Well, I'll go. I'm ready. I'm ready right now. I gotta sign something. I don't want you. I want her, the one who hit the ball. You can climb back under the cow. She's good. She's very good. She's a pitcher. She just didn't pitch today because she pitched the day before. Well, thanks for that extra special glimpse into her life. I want you. You I saw, you I like. Now, what do you say? There's a train leaving for Chicago tomorrow. Oh, come on. What do you say? Are you in? No, thanks. Daddy. No, thanks. Hey, no skin off my ash, Tabula. You want to stay here plucking cows, that's your business. This is Tony Mazur here, and uh, I've got a really fun interview here because uh, the topic with baseball season just around the corner, whenever it's going to start, uh, we've all, we all get in the minds of, uh, of baseball when we talk about, uh, and especially with the whole coronavirus uh, situation that's happening, we're kind of a little more nostalgic and we're going back in the old days and watching some old uh, games that we watched and some old videotapes and especially some of the old movies. And a lot of people remember watching Major League. You watched uh, A League of Their Own was, was one of the big ones. And it's being played a lot, especially when you're trying to find some distraction to get away from the news. And they're showing A League of Their Own, which I think is probably the best baseball movie and uh it really put the uh all-american girls professional baseball league on the map for a lot of people who were a lot younger like myself who didn't know about it until the 90s when i was growing up and uh but there's another reminder too out there and it's a book called the incredible women of the all-american girls professional baseball league it's by anika orock and she is joining us here and anika this is um I mean, the first question I have to ask you, by the way, is uh, were you inspired to uh, write and to draw? Because you you not only wrote this book, but you also illustrated a lot of it as well, or you illustrated it as well. And uh, were you inspired by the movie? And how much of the movie, based on your research, really kind of stayed true to the script, or was it very Hollywood? Uh, Well... Let's see, I guess to answer in order, I will say not much of the book was actually inspired by the movie, uh, save for the fact that without the movie, the book probably wouldn't exist. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because, like, as you said, uh, before the movie, nobody really knew the League existed, maybe with the exception of the few people who had grown up with it and had gone to see these women play baseball. But it was concentrated in these Midwest cities where war production factories were located. So, Anybody outside of that area certainly read articles about them in national publications and magazines. It was a pretty big deal. But after that, you know, they just memory sort of faded. And these women really found it difficult to convince anybody that they played professional baseball in the 40s into the 1950s. Uh, So they just really didn't talk about it. And it just to them, I think, seemed like a normal a normal thing they had done. I don't know that they really realized the significance until later. I was 12 years old when A League of Their Own uh, came out in theaters, so I definitely remember it, and I always loved it, and it was one of my favorite movies, but um, I I didn't really think of the movie as a a source for something to write a book about. The movie didn't occur to me until I, I realized that all of my baseball illustrations and the work I had been doing was really lacking one major thing, and that was the presence of women, (laughs) especially coming from a woman. You know, I was just, uh, that's my work, and I thought, well, that's kind of weird. And I just started researching stories of women in baseball, and the first story that I really knew about that I recalled being based on a true story 
was the movie A League of Their Own. And as I dug in a little bit further, I found some wonderful stories of of these women. Um, but I also found uh, the documentary that inspired the movie, which was created by one of the former players' um, sons, uh, Callahan, one of the Callahan sisters. There were two sisters that played in the league. And her son created a documentary in the early 80s. And uh, that was what inspired Penny Marshall to create the movie. So... Uh, the movie itself uh, is, it definitely captures a lot of the spirit of the league and, you know, the, it touches on some things that really happened, like there really were the Rockford Peaches and the Racing Bells and, um, you know, a lot of things were, were definitely true, but a lot of it, most of it uh, has kind of that Hollywood, Hollywood sparkle to it. So uh, I think one of the main things that the movie kind of misses on is that the league existed for 11 years. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't just like one year during the war, which it kind of feels like, okay, the war's over, see ya. <laughs> yeah, I was just and, gonna, I was um, just going to say that because the movie, the way it, it is kind of written, it almost seems like they played one m majestic season and that was it. And no, it went from 1943, uh, it, it, yeah, it was around 1943 to 1954. This isn't uh this wasn't just a one and done. This and it had a lot of success as well. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, um, what surprised me most in my research was learning that it it became even more successful right around the time the war ended. So, 1945 was a pretty big season, and they had a really large draw during the war. Absolutely, but um, it didn't. It certainly didn't start dying down right after the war. Uh, entering into the 1950s when everybody had television and gas rations were no longer a thing. And, uh, you know, there were all, all kinds of factors. There was also sort of the push for women to get back into their traditional roles after the war. Um, so there, was a, there were a whole lot of factors at play that um, kind of led to the, the demise of the league. I think primarily being that uh, the ownership uh, was changed hands to local businessmen who just kind of treated it more like a fun novelty rather than what Wrigley's original vision was. And then the man who took over after him really saw it as a potential league, a real thing that could grow and become something, which was also pretty unusual for that time for uh, anybody to be thinking that way about a professional sports league for women, let alone a couple of uh, big time men. So <laughs> it's pretty fascinating, but uh, yeah, so I, I think that's one of the major things that maybe the movie kind of misses. And also just, you know, for instance, the coaches. I love Tom Hanks' character, and I think he's fantastic. Um, and I think it makes the movie that they make him the way that he is. But there were no kind of drunk, who cares, managers. They were all ex-big leaguers and, uh, you know, really took it seriously. The women were really treated like professional ball players, And uh, the same with the chaperones. They were... Uh, you know, they weren't sort of these like fuddy-duddy <laughs> uh, Margaret Hamilton look-alike. You know, uh, they they were very integral in, um, in the management of the team and the women. So, but you know, other than that, it, it, again, it's, you can't be mad at it because it's just it's a fabulous movie, and it also put you know put it on the map, like you said. 
Anika Orak is uh, joining us here. Uh, she is the author of The Incredible Women of the All-American Girls Base- uh, Professional Baseball League, and uh, the book is available. It's great. A lot of wonderful illustrations in the book. Uh, by the way, b- before we get to more of this, I'm, I was flipping through some of the illustrations, and I love them. I love the classic style. Was that, like, inspired by Al Hirschfeld? <laughs> That's so – I you know – I love when people say that. That is such a compliment because he's one of my favorites. But, I, you know, no, uh, not directly. Probably somewhere, someplace in my subconscious uh, from a kid. Because, you know, at, when I was a kid, I used to love, my grandpa had this big Al Hirschfeld kind of a coffee table book. And my favorite thing to do was flip through and look for the Ninas, you know, where he had hidden yes. his daughter's name in the drawings. So that was always kind of like a fun thing to do as a kid. Uh, you know, like an activity. It was like but, where's uh, Waldo? I never, yeah, exactly. It was before before there was Waldo, there was Nina, and uh, I I never tried to emulate that style consciously. But uh, I think, as with anything and with any artist, all of your favorite artists as a kid. I mean, he's he's certainly one of them. I have a whole handful, if not more. But um, I think you know when you have favorite artists and you're constantly eating up all their good stuff, you just can't help but put it into your own art somehow. Oh, trust me. uh, I did the same thing when I, when I drew comics growing up and I look back at them, I'm like, well, I was clearly inspired by Calvin and Hobbes right now because I'm looking like that's definitely (laughs) like Bill Watterson esque type of drawing. I just put out there. That's awesome. Oh, and I love his stuff. And Charles Schultz, a similar thing with Bill Watterson and Charles Schultz, where it's like so simple, just the simplest use of line, but it, has so much personality and says so much. Um, and I guess Hirschfeld is that same way. I've always had a great appreciation for economy of line and what can be done with it. You know, what two dots can make you feel, uh, an expression makes you feel something or you feel sorry for someone or you feel delighted by someone and it's literally like four lines. You know, I just love that concept. You talk about personality inside uh, when you, with the drawings, but I mean these <laughs> these women who played the game also had some interesting personalities, as shown obviously in the movie. You had Madonna and Rosie O'Donnell and Gina Davis, but uh, talk about some of the more uh, personalities that were in the league and some of the best players that when you go to the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown that you can go see you go see the exhibit and some of the uh, women who are in the Hall of Fame. Talk about some of the those like top players of that era. Oh, sure. Well, you know, when you talk about personality, I will say uh, from the first moment I entered into one of these reunions uh, that these women still meet together, the ones that are are still surviving and the ones who are able to, they still meet every year at a different city. And there is so much personality. I just, it's, you could write a whole book about just the reunions. They're amazing. But um, some of my favorite personalities that were some of these um, top players, um, unfortunately, several of them have passed away since. But uh, one of my favorite women that I've, I've spent a little bit of time with is a pitcher by the name of Jean Fout. And she is um, she's the only professional baseball player, man or woman, to have pitched two perfect games in a career. She's just a phenomenal pitcher and, and played several positions. A lot of these women pay, played multiple positions. Uh, when needed, they a lot of players had to play injured, and uh, you know, so they're really just astounding athletes. They didn't just play well for women; they <laughs> they played well as athletes. But uh, and then you've got a woman by the name of Sophie Curies, who uh, just I don't even know who you would compare her to now, but 
uh, one of the fastest women uh, to play ball, and she has an insane career record of stolen bases. Uh, I want to say it's over 2,000. I don't have the number in front of me right now. So she's the Ricky Henderson of the league. I, that's a very good comparison, yes. Um, and she, I love the quotes that um, from her in the book, and I think they have a lot of personality, but one of them where she says something to the effect of, um, you know, some of these players, if they weren't, if they weren't looking, I could steal the pants off of them. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, these women that played the way they, they played and then they watched the major leagues now, and a, a lot of the women, it, it was really fun listening to them say things like, oh, these guys nowadays, you know, you get four days rest between starting or five days rest. And we used to pitch, you know, a full game. Some of them would pitch like two full games of a doubleheader and, uh, you know. So and then I pitch tomorrow. Talk about, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love hearing him talk about it. Like, yeah, I'll show you something. You know, <laughs> you're making a million dollars and not doing anything and blowing bubbles in the dugout. And, you know, I love hearing him talk about that. But, uh, yeah, several women that just really, uh, well, there's Dorothy Kamenchek also, also known as Dottie Kamenchek, who, unfortunately passed away before I had a chance to ever um, talk with her, but um, she was actually scouted by major league baseball and uh, invited to sign a contract with a triple a team, uh, which she refused for several reasons. But I think one of them that is entertaining to me is that she made more money playing ball with the Rockford peaches than she would have made signing on to play with uh, the club. So uh, yeah, there's just some incredible women in the Hall of Fame, and and in real life, they may even be your next door neighbor. I don't know. It's it's always worth keeping an eye on, uh, you know, news stories and where these women live. And if you ever have an opportunity to show up where they might be, they do a lot of uh, ceremonial first pitches at local ball games and uh, public speaking, or they'll be inducted into like say a local Hall of Fame. And particularly in a state like Ohio, Dorothy Kamenchek, uh came from Norwood, Ohio. And uh, several of the women from the Midwest. So there's a strong likelihood that you've got a former professional ball player living nearby you in your neck of the woods. There's such great stories, and you can find them all in the book, uh, The Incredible Women of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. Uh, Nika Orock is joining us here on the show. Uh, one thing that I found interesting in, in the research uh, before I got the book and when I read the book is how the league adapted and changed so many times over. Because originally it was a softball league, and then the the ball changed and the base paths changed, and things kind of really adapted. One thing you see in baseball, for example, is baseball essentially, except for sign stealing and you know and technology and everything, essentially baseball is the same sport it was when Abner Doubleday founded it uh, 150 years ago. Uh, it's just obviously added different things and uh, supplements, <clears throat> steroids, and all these other things <laughs> that have popped up over time. But when it originally began in 1943, by the time it, 1954 came around, the league was v- very different and had to, not just subtle changes, but large scale changes over time. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's, I, I mean, there are several reasons for that. But like you said, the first year it was uh, meant to be a softball league. I think that they didn't uh, really anticipate just how competitive these women were going to be or how good it would be. And I'm sure there were also some social ideas around that, um, being that, you know, women don't play baseball. But, uh, it just it quickly changed because they were just so uh, competitive and the games were so close and they just they had to keep increasing base pass distances, increasing mound to plate distances, uh, shrinking the ball. 
and also the pitching styles. Um, a lot of these women, you know, several of them did play organized softball prior to joining the league, but a good number, if not most of them, did not. They just grew up playing baseball with their brothers or with the boys in their neighborhood. Uh, some of them, like Jean Fout, the pitcher I was telling you about, uh, had a local men's baseball team, and she spent a lot of time down there in the dugout learning from them, and they, they let her hang around and showed her different pitches. And um, So a lot of them grew up pitching overhand, so it was even more of an adjustment to pitch underhand. And when they finally switched over, uh, as Jean Fout said, I was home free. But um, the fact that a lot of them – didn't you know just all those changes no matter whether you played softball or baseball or whatever the uniformity there was no uniformity <laughs> really ever nothing consistent so to show up every year uh to these new rules and these new uh sizes and distances to me it's just a testament to you know even more confirmation of how athletic these women were that they could just adapt every year i, I don't know that they even really knew until they arrived at spring training um, that the changes had been made, maybe in a letter, but um, yeah, it was there wasn't any such thing as off-season training, really. A lot of these women uh, would finish up a season and then either go back home to their families or take up other jobs um, or go back to their factory work or whatever they had been doing in the off-season uh, and then go back to playing baseball. So I can only imagine showing up and, okay, now we're running this much farther and now we're throwing like this. <laughs> <laughs> pretty incredible basically does it all in this book it's a great coffee table book but it's more than just a coffee table book it's uh especially one when you have a young for example young young girls who are maybe in high school or even younger than that who are told that you know being a tomboy or something that that there's a stereo stereotype to it and that you can't play different sports and it's a, a very inspiring read for many reasons you can take i think you could take a lot from with this book in different ways but i think ultimately it is a very informative and entertaining book about these very colorful personalities in a league that thankfully there was something Hollywood did well for us. And it kind of really helped put the spotlight on uh, with that, with the league of their own on that league. And it seems since then there has been so much more intrigue over this over time and causing a lot of people to uh, uh, be really interested in this league and going back and, and honoring these great women who were a part of this, who really, I mean, if you think about it, help keep the game of baseball together because Branch Rickey was concerned, uh, Wrigley and Rickey were both concerned that there's a possibility that when the war's going on and the war ends, baseball might be done. And if it wasn't for these women, we may not be talking about baseball right now. We may not be having a conversation about baseball if it wasn't for these women keeping the sport together as the men were overseas fighting. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. There, I mean, who knows Who knows how it would have gone otherwise, but uh, with so many men going overseas, and, and in particular ballplayers, um, you know, the the minor league baseball just ceased, I believe, during World War II because so many uh, players had gone and managers who could not go and fight. A lot of them actually went over and coached on the league. But, um, you know, and then you had just kind of a weird major league season going on uh, when it happened, had a lot of fill-in players. Um, a lot of interesting stories came out of the World War II era with major league baseball. But, yeah, that Wrigley, as much as he cared or thought it was a great venture he also you know as any big businessman would do he was paying attention to his bottom line and if nothing else saved uh saved the business of baseball by by keeping people interested and and even the president of the united states at the time uh declaring you know or 
telling the commissioner that he felt it was necessary for baseball to continue, uh, despite all the questions about the war and how necessary it was. Uh, he believed it was necessary to keep up morale and uh, provide recreation for people working in factories. So uh, Wrigley, I guess, was also sort of fulfilling a patriotic duty by forming this league. And I guess that's what makes this whole situation we're in now particularly unusual. <laughs> we didn't even really see anything like this during World War II. So uh, I think it's kind of an interesting time to revisit this story for for reasons that we're dealing with now also, um, just for, for what you're talking about, that, that we may not be having this conversation otherwise and um, how it can maybe apply now. And we, we really do owe them a nice debt of gratitude. Well, Anika, thanks so much for joining us here today. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, continuing to, because uh, I've read the book. I think it's great. Uh, and I encourage everybody to go out and check this out. Uh, like I said, a great coffee table book, but it's also great because the illustrations are fantastic, but also the quotes, some great quotes, some great lines, and, and very good history with this. It's called The Incredible Women of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League by Anika Orak. Anika, thanks so much for joining us, and uh, look forward to uh, uh, maybe hearing from you down the road. We'll talk a little more about uh, more cartoons and uh, about mm-hmm. uh, art as well instead of just baseball. I appreciate it. Yes, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much to Anika for that interview. That was a lot of fun talking about that. The incredible women of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. Now I'm going to talk to former, actually former Baltimore Oriole, the Ripken family, and it's Bill Ripken, and talking about his book, State of Play, The Old School Guide to New School Baseball. Again, the audio quality is as good as I can make of it, so I hope you enjoy it. My conversation from the MLB Network, Bill Ripken. I've been looking forward to this interview for a while because I'm a fan of his on MLB Network. I enjoyed him as a player for the days back with the Orioles, uh, played a cup of coffee with the Rangers, and even the Cleveland Indians, the 95 Indians. And uh, you recognize the name, you recognize the face, and it's Bill Ripken. He has a new book out. It's called The State of Play. And it's talking a little bit about what's happening in baseball as far as, and, and you know, we'll get to the Astros and we'll get to all that in a little bit. But the way baseball has really changed in the last few years with technology and this amount of analytics and advanced statistics and it really is it's i don't know if in my opinion i don't know if it's necessarily making the game better or more enjoyable and kind of that's kind of your argument in the book bill for in state of play well part of it is too is i don't think the game's changed near as much say the game has changed and my point with that would be if you watch the game just sit there and watch the game put noise canceling headphones on and watch the game the game still played and still won the way it was in yesteryear and i'll quote my father you pitch it you hit it you catch it better than the other i do believe it's a thinking man's game but it should not be overthought so when i started putting some stuff down on paper to come up with this book, I just felt that over these past few years, the new school this, the new school that, we're getting that even old school guys threw the bats and balls on the field and said, go get them with no plan whatsoever. And I just kind of wanted to point out that old school guys, we like numbers. So abstract information and number-related playing is baseball. 
Yeah, and the one thing I noticed that's interesting, and I'm an old school baseball guy as well, that when you bring up the eye test and saying that in, in Major League Baseball, you look at things that, okay, I think the the old school baseball guys are open to reading a little bit of analytics and the advanced statistics, all of that. You, if it's given to you, you use it. and you. But the I almost see a, a smugness on the other side with the analytics crowd where, no, 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 I don't want any of the old dinosaur scouts out there. This is what our numbers are suggesting, and therefore we need to plug and play them. As a, and, you're, and now you're seeing this in basketball and you're seeing it in football as well that, well, our our advanced statistics say this, when in reality, I think a lot of us old school people are looking and going, I, look, it's just it's not passing the eye test for me. Well, well, here's the deal. In a lot of this stuff that they said, this is what our numbers show and this is what we do. Um, okay, spin rate is kind of just stormed onto the scene. But are you telling me that Jim Palmer didn't have a good spin rate? or Doc Gooden did have a good spin rate, or Bob Gibson or Sandy Koufax, those guys all pitched up in the zone because the eye test said, hey, when these guys who have an extra gear on their fastball, or as we would say has a little giddy-up, um, they, the hitters let you know when you can do certain things. Other guys might try to emulate what Palmer did, but didn't have the late life or that extra gear on the fastball, and it got hit out of the park. But you didn't need a number that coincided with something. Spin rate has always existed. The fact that we can now measure something and then therefore name it, you know, spin rate. Um, now it all seems to be brand spanking new, and the game's not new. The, the game is very cyclical in nature. It always has been. So all the conversation that swirls around spin rate and we must throw the high fastball to combat the launch angle revolution, which is a whole other issue in its own self, um, high fastballs and curveballs have been used forever. You know, what's, what's interesting is that I'm seeing all these stats. So you have batting average on balls and player. They call it BABIP. You have this WOBA, WRC+, BQR, all these different numbers. Uh, and the other one I love is WAR, which is now basically the end-all, be-all stat, the wins above replacement. And you're starting to look at it as a way of justifying salaries. And it's this whole craziness where I'm looking at guys that even, even with Hall of Fame statistics. They're looking back at guys who have good wars and wanting to put them in the Hall of Fame. Like, Bobby Gritch was a nice player for his time. Not a Hall of Famer, in my opinion, but they said, well, look at his wins above replacement. That's why he should be in the Hall of Fame. And I said, Bobby Gritch hit, like, 270, 260. That's not Hall of Fame numbers for me. And it almost seems like it's... Tri uh, the analytics are used to justify an argument here. Well, here's the first one. We'll just address war and its singularity. So their definition was wins above replacement. And the replacement was defined as a readily available AAA player or someone off the guy's bench. Baseball, if war doesn't work in its current time, in my opinion, we cannot go back through the history books. And the very numbers that the new schoolers don't like, the counting numbers, they're all plugging and playing the counting numbers in when they try to figure out the, the guy's war. So... If you don't like them, don't use them. But I, I just have a hard time with that because baseball is too complex to spit one number out and attach it to a player and say, yep, that makes sense. 
It really is. It's incredible. And again, I want I want to point out that you're not necessarily saying that this isn't just an absolute war on analytics and a war on this this advanced statistics craze. But you're also bringing up a different angle, and especially for somebody who is as high profile as as you are, that that this kind of needs to be discussed. And we see it in in different sports. You've seen it like teams like the Cleveland Browns are are going in for a uh, a more analytics based. Uh, the business you see it in basketball with this uh, uh, the, basically in basketball they're taking three pointers or they're uh, uh, dunking the basketball there's no more 18 foot jump shots there's no <laughs> mid-range game so that's what ends up happening and now baseball it's just applied to it in every facet of the game here well you you said a couple things in there that I'd like to point out first of all we need to define what analytics are because the new schoolers use analytics as a noun for every nugget of information that they can throw at you. I use analytics in a way of analyzing. So I analyze things. And when I dismiss the war, or I would dismiss DRS in the chapter, or I will discuss launch angle in a very big way, guess what? I use numbers, and I use information that makes my point. So this whole concept that if an old-school guy doesn't accept certain analytics, he's found to be rigid or unwilling or unable to conform to the new way of thinking. In yesteryear, an old school guy might say, well, this is how we've always done it. Now, I agree that's a terrible statement by itself because it has no basis for this is why you've done it. But now it seems in the new school, a lot of things said, this is how things are done now. But they don't explain it. And if you're just telling me that if you slap a DRS or a war on somebody or tell me that somebody worked on his launch angle and that's your why, then you're way off base. I have to ask because I noticed when I was reading a little bit of the book, this trend of putting the number two hitter is the best hitter in the lineup. Now, going back to the team that you played on in the 95 Indians, you had uh, somebody like Kenny Lofton, Omar Vizquel, then you get to the meat of the order. But the first guy, first two players were the speedsters. They didn't hit a lot of home runs. They stole bases. They bunted. They moved runners over. They set the table for the three, four, and five men. Now you're looking at the number two guy in the in the order is Mike Trout, is Pete Alonzo, is Josh Bell, that they are the main guy, and that even the cleanup hitter is a lesser player nowadays. Yeah, well, look at the Washington Nationals, and that might remind you a little bit of the Cleveland Indians in 95 with Trey Turner and Adam Eaton up top, and Rendon, who led the league in RBIs, which RBIs do matter. Don't let anybody tell you they don't, because you need to score runs to win games, and you need people to drive them in. Soto was an absolute beast behind Rendon hitting in the four spot. Um, look, I, I just think that, and using numbers again, I can prove that your 15 extra at-bats that you get during the course of the year by hitting one spot up in the order, hitting second instead of third, doesn't outweigh the possibility of you hitting in the first inning with more men on base. You know, 80 to 90 times you might get a guy on base in front of you when you're hitting in the third spot instead of somebody that's hitting 35% on base right hit in front of you and you're hitting in the second spot. There was too many um, wasted opportunities, in my opinion, if you're talking about Mike Trout and Christian Yelich are the two guys that I cite in the book for the lineup construction. Yes, you can win MVP. And yes, your individual numbers can look great 
especially when people ignore the RBI nowadays, which just blows my mind. But is that truly the best spot in the order for your best hitter to be hit in the second spot? Because I just believe you're forfeiting, and I use numbers and information to point this out. I think you're forfeiting too many opportunities for your guys to drive and run because driving in runs means something, because runs scored means something. You have to score more runs than the other team to win. Well, and then you also have different uh, different cases where, and, and I'd love to ask you this, uh, the style of baseball, like you mentioned earlier in the interview here, is that baseball is essentially the same. You throw the ball, you hit, you hit the ball, you field the ball. But there's dif- differences that we've seen, like bunting has gone by the wayside. Uh, the Bill James people, they look at bunting as you're wasting, you're basically giving it out. You're wasting a, a, an opportunity. Opposite field hitting with the shifts, stolen bases. I mean, the days of Ricky Henderson, Lou Brock, uh, Vince Coleman, those days are long gone, it seems. Speed at the top of the order, power in the middle. Will With baseball and sports uh, in general, there's a lot of trends, and things kind of go cyclical. They say styles come back every 20 years or so. In baseball, do you think we'll get back to the importance of the hard nose, like the Whitey Herzog type of baseball, or is this truly the future here that we're seeing in the present? No, it's not the future. I think what you see is, like you talked about, it's going to come in, in cyclical rounds. But I do believe in the playoffs you see a bunch putting down, and I do believe in the playoffs you see hit and runs and a stolen base. And if it's if it's important then, why isn't it important through the 162? I do want to touch on the overshift, though, because the, a lot of people talking about, do you think the overshift should be banned? The overshift doesn't work like the people think. It works. And in the chapter on overshifts, I use numbers. The BABIP that you've already hit on with it's a batting average on ball put in play, and that is a real number. I can grab it. I can see it. It's a ball put in play. What's the average on that? Well, in 2012, there was about 4,000 overshifts played. Last year, there was about 40,000 overshifts played. The BABIP virtually flatlined from 2012 all the way through 2019. So, if you're, if the Babbitt, the only thing the overshift can actually take away or, or affect is a ball put in play. And if the ball put in play's average is the same, whether it was 4,000 overshifts or 40,000 overshifts, that tells me league-wide it's a push. Now, it may hurt some donkey left-handed pull hitter and take 30 points off his average, but it's given 15 other guys two points league-wide. So I don't believe the overshift works near as well as people claim. I think during broadcast, if the overshift does take a hit away, the announcer may say something like, well, that's been a hit for 20 years, um, but not anymore, not with the use of analytics. But yet when a ball rolls into left field because the shortstop's on the second base side of second base, the announcer says, well, that ball just found a hole. And we don't cover you know, one was taken away and one was given. So if the Babbitt stays virtually flatlined year over year over year, if you take something away from somebody, you're giving it to somebody else. And that's the one thing about these shifts that you look at where the what's happening is the pitchers are throwing faster than they've ever been before. So they're throwing up over 95 miles an hour and they're throwing it inside. So you would say if you have those Adam Dunn or Joey Gallo type of left handers who basically their their whole goal is to try to hit the ball inside and everybody is shifting 
shifted onto the right side of the field that you would say, well, back in the days of Wade Boggs or Tony Gwynn or some of the uh, Rod Carew and some of the slap hitters, that they would just take the ball to all different fields. But you've said that the shift is not a new phenomenon. They've been doing the, you heard about the Ted Williams shift that Lou Boudreaux had back in the 40s and into the 50s. The shift is not a new thing, but this is the trend. So in a way, it, it, we I think we will be back to these days of, of stolen bases and bunting. And it's good to hear that there are people like you, Bill, that are in baseball's corner that this is, I don't want to say it's a fad, but this is kind of what's happening right now. And it's going to take a little bit for people to finally figure out once they get all their information in. Yeah, and the overshift, like you said, was not invented by the new school. Now, the overshift gone crazy is invented by the new school. But three guys I'm going to throw out there, left-hand hitters. Uh, Anthony Rizzo, Freddie Freeman, and Cody Bellinger. Through the 2018 season, had about 700 plate appearances against the overshift. Their average against the overshift was considerably higher than their league average was normal. You know, their regular league-wide career average through the 2018 mark. So those three guys wish you would overshift them all the time. So when you see numbers like that and you say statements and in broadcast or any other form of studio show, the overshift is hurting the game, I just don't believe it. We're just sitting here conditioned so, like I said, old school guys like myself, we like numbers, we use numbers, we love information, I love, uh, I use information. And throughout this book, if I'm dismissing something that I don't like in the new school and what they're talking about, I give examples of why it doesn't work, and I use numbers and information. Well hit toward left field. Back is Goodwin to the wall. It's a home run. It is a home run for Ripken.